Welcome to Biota.org Interviews. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today, Steve Grand is returning. Welcome back, Steve. Hi, Tom. Return of the Steve Grand. <laughs> yes. The sequel. Steve Grand First Blood, perhaps. <laughs> I thought today would be the ideal opportunity to look in depth at probably what you're best known for, and that is creatures. Now, when we last talked to you about the historical component of your development, you were just in an educational software company that was just about to split off into a games company. Can you talk a little bit about that move, please? The educational software company, I was writing these text adventures for, and the company split in two, and I kind of fell down a hole in the middle, as often happens in these cases. And then, for reasons I don't really remember, I woke up one day to discover I'd become a games programmer, and uh, was doing most of my work for the games outfit. So I didn't know anything about computer games, I wasn't even interested in them. So I had to come up with some ideas. And basically, I, I took the text adventure engine that I'd written for education and converted into a graphics-based system and wrote a game around it. I think I think I started off writing a game based on cowboys and Indians, but I don't remember why, because I wasn't interested in that either. But it ended up as a, a game called Robin Hood. It wasn't a very good game, but it was quite interesting because it was in the nature of this kind of, of an engine that you could make emergent plots. So I, so I just stuck together a bunch of little plotlets associated with the legend of Robin Hood. And these cute little people used to run around on screen and you'd interfere with them. It was a god game, you know, like popular. And some kind of a plot would emerge out of the end. And after that, I did a sequel called Rome. Same basic idea, just added a few bits. And that was published in the States by Maxis, who are the Sin City people. And Jeff Braun, who was running Maxis at the time, got very interested in what I was doing and asked me to write, come up with another idea. So after a bit of toing and froing, we came up with the idea of small furry creatures, which was a kind of, I had in mind a little woodland clearing full of Ewoks going about their daily business and being interfered with from on high, just just like in the other God game. But somehow or other, it turned into creatures. So, so that's where creatures came from. It was basically me desperately trying to think of an idea to suit Maxis. And somewhere along the line, you picked up a, a small development team, and through this period, you were also developing mythology associated with the game. How did all that unfold? Well, I didn't have a development team to start with. I was working alone. These, these were the days of bedroom programmers, when it was perfectly possible for a single programmer, perhaps plus an artist, to write a whole game. So when I started writing Creatures, I was working alone on contract, and it was only near the end of the project that another five or six people got involved to finish it off four years, four and a half years later. The mythology thing, I decided I wanted to create these, this virtual world with little creatures in it, and it seemed to me that to make it complete, you needed these creatures to have some kind of history and some past, and history tends to stem from geography. So I started out with the geography of the, the virtual world and then wrote an explanation for myself, just wrote an explanation of what went through these creatures' minds over the generations and how they developed their own explanation for their world and, and for mythology. And so I wrote a long document entirely for my own consumption just to kind of set the backstory for this so the, the creatures had some kind of raison d'etre. There's still a contemporary debate in artificial life circles about how important mythology is in artificial life programs. Certainly, I mean, to this day, in, in researching a lot of this interview, I went to the Creatures Wiki, which is an amazing online resource. And a large portion of that is devoted to the mythology and building on the mythology. Can you talk a little bit about the mythology as a meta-concept? Is it related to developing this game and how it improved the following over the years? Well, I did it for consistency. I think if you look at Tolkien, 
Tolkien, for example. Tolkien was an historian, an expert on, on ancient history and, and you know, particularly Celtic and Saxon and Icelandic history. And he, when he wrote his stories, created vast amounts of data from which a tiny amount was, was brought together to make the, the plot lines of the stories. And you know that. When you read Tolkien, you realize that there's this enormous amount of stuff there. And although his plots tend to get a bit convoluted, they're, they're at least self-consistent. Everything fits together properly. And that's only because he did his research properly and, and created the backstory. You know that you're just seeing 1% of the work he did, but that 99% is there to, to make the rest complete. And I think that was really important in the case of creatures, probably in case of any kind of adventure game, that 99% of the stuff should be hidden and just in the developer's mind because it makes the universe of the, the game self-consistent. You, you, you notice the flaws. If virtual worlds aren't self-consistent, then you, you soon discover there's something missing and it all feels false and you feel deceived. But in terms of artificial life, as a concept, there are plenty of artificial life-related tools, but the addition of artificial life plus mythology was relatively critical in the development and long-term progress of creatures. Can you talk a little bit about how you develop a mythology in parallel to an artificial life environment? I guess you develop the mythology of an artificial life environment in exactly the same way as you would a novel. It, it seemed to me that, that all mythology is based on geography. So I started with the geography, and geography in turn is based on geology. So to, to create the creature's world, I started out with the geology of it, and the fact that the, the world, because I couldn't do 3D graphics in those days, I was doing 2.5D graphics, the creature's world had to be flat. So I made it a disc instead of a ball. And once you've got a flat world, then that's the starting point for all sorts of ideas that inevitably the creatures are going to end up living on the rim of this world because that's where gravity will push them. And so they're only going to have two kinds of direction in their life, left and right. And it seemed to me that any creature that grew up in such a world would come to regard left and right differently, just as we in English use bad words for left, like sinister, and good words for right, like dexter. So these creatures would end up with a, a mythology based on leftness and rightness. And I, I, at one point I wrote a little, or started to write a little novella about a journey that these creatures would take, going around the world in a clockwise direction, the sunwise direction. Uh, as soon as you start with, with a basic idea, like the fact that this world is disc-shaped, everything starts to fall into place. The way the weather works, the way the creatures think, the way their history develops, where they live, all of it starts to make sense and, and develops from there. Basically, you're saying the mythology comes first and the artificial life comes second. Well, the artificial life is a means to an end, really. It was never meant to be an artificial life game. That was never meant to be the object. Uh, the object was just to entertain people. In fact, the reason it became such a complex artificial life system was, was pretty straightforward in games programming terms. I want people to care about these creatures and otherwise they wouldn't get involved in the game and in order to care about them I figured they had to believe in them and it's really easy to tell when you're being conned and so I decided that if I tried to fool people into thinking these creatures were alive they wouldn't feel like they were alive and, and the users would feel like they were being conned and that I as the designer was sitting staring over their shoulder all the time. You know, you see this in adventure games when you're supposed to walk into the room and turn that tap three times to the left and then jump up and down on that spot and so on. It's all very artificial. And you can feel that the programmer has just set up this puzzle for you and, and you feel cheated. And I didn't want that to happen. I wanted people to care about these creatures. I didn't want to fool them into thinking people were, that the creatures were alive. In fact, I didn't think I could because the more I tried to fool them, the more people's lie detector circuits start to come into operation. So basically, I just 
decided to make the creatures alive. I thought there was no point trying to fool them, so I'd actually have to do my best to make real living things. And everything stemmed from there. The artificial life aspect was a consequence of that decision. It wasn't actually meant to be the motivation for anyone to play the game. Now, parts of the complexity that you've discussed related to the kind of narrative engine, you've discussed the mythology, and there was a creature's agent object script. Is that the narrative engine, or is that something that's independent? There's no narrative. I mean, all of this backstory, this mythology that, that I created was for my benefit alone. I never even told anybody until they started asking questions about it. It was just there for me to try to create a raison d'etre for these creatures and some kind of basis on which to make design decisions, because otherwise my decisions would be arbitrary. So that was all hidden away, and, and there was never a narrative in the game in, in the sense of any progression. There was no plot. It was just a world, and it just happened to be. It existed, and that was as far as it went. And likewise, inside the game, there is no code for plot and no code for the creature's behavior. Part of my decision to, to, to make these creatures as close to real living things as I could make them implied that I shouldn't tell the creatures what to do. If I told them what to do, they wouldn't be autonomous. So I had to make creatures that could learn things for themselves and figure out what to do. And therefore, I had no control over it. So, so the script engine that you're referring to, at least in, in the first version of Creatures, had no consequence as far as the plot was concerned. It was just a way of converting biology inside the creatures into computery actions, so a way of expressing their action primitives and their sensory primitives. And there was no plot in the game at all. I'm interested in the momentum towards the end of the development of creatures before its actual release. In terms of getting people involved, in terms of actually producing a product, can you talk a little bit about that, please? Well, for four and a half years, I just toiled with this alone. And it all started to come together near the end and became into a, became a big product. But it was actually quite hard work to begin with. I had to convince my bosses to let me do this. And in those days, you expected to produce a game every six months. It wasn't long development times like we have nowadays. So it was quite hard work to convince anyone that this was worth doing. I remember, for example, showing it to our managing director. The first time I showed it to him, I talked about all the artificial life and stuff that was going on inside. And he just said, the scrolling is, is crap doesn't scroll very smoothly, and that was his pronouncement on the whole game. And I could tell, you know, this is going to be hard work. But then, a few months later, I showed him the game again, and one of the creatures did something, I don't remember what now, but it surprised me. And so I said, ooh, I didn't know it was going to do that, and pointed out that I had no idea what these creatures were going to do. And suddenly, our managing director freaked out and realized there was something interesting and special going on here that wasn't a bit like a game. And from that point on, bless him, Michael, he was totally committed to the project and gave me the space in which to develop it. So so what was supposed to be a nine-month project turned into a five-year one, about four and a half of which I worked alone. And then during the latter stages of it, Michael went around trying to find some money to support it and went to various publishers. And eventually it was Warner Brothers who stumped up quite a significant amount of cash and made it a real commercial possibility. And at that point, we had the money to bring other people in to the project. So there was about six of us, maybe, towards the end. Up to that point, there'd just been me and, and an artist. So it was a long, slow burn, followed by this frenzy of activity. And then near to the end of development, the financiers in the company started getting involved and interested in the significance of it. And Warner Brothers, who were about to invest vast amounts of money, sent Dave Cliff round, as I mentioned in the previous interview, to come and check me out and see if I was talking sense. And I showed him all the technology that was under the hood, and he got excited. And then all of a sudden, everyone was excited and interested in what was going on. And it became quite a big thing. But none of us really knew 
what was going to happen. We didn't know it was going to be a big product. We didn't know it was going to sell. I personally didn't think anyone would buy it. That all came as a bit of a shock after release. Well, let's talk a little bit about just after the release of Creatures. You weren't expecting for it to be a success, but after its release, when did it actually dawn on you that all this tinkering in some regard had actually created something that was an amazing product? I suppose the first inkling I had was actually in terms of its scientific worth, when the scientific community started getting interested in what I'd done. That came as a real shock for me. But as far as the product goes, probably the moment it hit me as a surprise was when the newspapers and TV started getting interested. You know, I expected games magazines to come and interview me. That's the way it works. But I didn't expect major national newspapers or new scientists or that kind of thing to, to be interested in a stupid computer game. So, so that was the point when I was suddenly shocked into thinking, oh my goodness, this is interesting. People see what I see. And in terms of that interest manifesting itself in Creatures 2, what was the development like? How did it change between Creatures 1 and Creatures 2? Well, for me, it changed quite dramatically between Creatures 1 and 2 because I didn't actually have anything to do with Creatures 2. After Creatures 1 was released, we had a million pound advance on the game and it was selling well and everyone was excited by it. One of the things that came as a big surprise to all of us was that big companies like IBM and NCR and so on suddenly started knocking on the door and showing an interest in the technology behind the game. So the money people sat up and took notice and eventually I moved up from being senior programmer in the company to technical director, CP Technology, with a seat on the board and I was given a suit and a car and sent to business meetings and at that point I stopped programming and the creatures series was then taken over by other people using my basic engine and they just added to it and sadly I lost a lot of touch with the program at that point. It was great to see it going on, it was great to see this community, particularly the web community, starting to build but I missed out on a lot of it because I was too busy in dreary business meetings. Aside from dreary business meetings, somewhere over this period you dreamt up the idea of a, a conference and brought together a number of great minds of the time and somehow connected up with Bruce Damer. And can you talk a little bit about Digital Biota 2 and how it came together? It actually happened the other way around. I, I, I met Bruce Damer first. I think he came over to see us. I don't remember why. He must have been visiting on one of his whirlwind tours. But anyway, I, I went to his conference in Canada. He organized a conference called the Digital Burgess in Banff in Canada and the Rockies. And I went over to that, and it was a wonderful little conference in a fantastic place. And we hiked up a huge mountain to go and see the Burgess Shale and see the fossils of the Middle Cambrian, all these creatures that had been thriving at the time and then went extinct and just don't exist anymore. And it was a lovely, lovely little conference. All, a lot of the, the people from the first generation of A-Life were there. And we had a great time. So... About a year or so, I suppose, after that, my company you know, had a bit of money. One of the directors suggested we ran a conference. So I talked to Bruce and we decided to call our second conference, Digital Biota 2, and make it part of the series so that the Digital Burgess was first. And so then I was faced with organising a conference, which I'd never done before in my life. And I made the perhaps rather rash decision to invite all my heroes. And much to my amazement, they all came. So I invited Richard Dawkins and Chris Langton, who coined the term artificial life in the first place, and Tom Ray and Larry Yeager, people like that from the first generation, and Douglas Adams, who I'd been introduced to some time before, and all of these great minds came.
came along and uh, we settled ourselves in in a little old Cambridge college called Magdalen College, a lovely medieval building, and had this fantastic few days. <laughs> I can't actually remember most of it because I was rushing around all over the place, desperately trying to make it all work. Uh, it's a good thing my wife and, the, and my son came along because they actually helped me organise it because it was an enormous amount of work to run a conference. But it was a great time. We had a wonderful time. And the audio lives on to this day as kind of testament to the conference in many regards. Yeah, there were some great talks, and, and um, you particularly have Douglas's talk um, on your site at the moment. We have all of them. It's fantastic. I'm really glad they're preserved because <laughs> all of the talks were wonderful. They were all special for that conference. You know, they weren't just straightforward talks that people were giving everywhere. They were they, they put their heart and soul into dreaming up these talks. Richard Dawkins gave the opening keynote, which was fantastic. And then Chris Langton closed the conference, and then Douglas's talk was in the middle. And he, we actually brought him in to do a debate. No, no, that's right. We, I asked him to give a talk, and, and he said he didn't want to give a talk because he didn't think he was smart enough to be amongst us wonderful scientists. So he was going to chair a debate instead. But the night before in the bar, he tried out a few ideas on us and uh, decided he was brave enough to give a talk after all and gave this fantastic semi-impromptu talk, which you now have the, the stream of the podcast of on the Biota site. What was fascinating about the Digital Biota 2 conference was that many, as you say, many of the historical names associated came, but also a number of lesser-known names came and, and gave presentations which many people have emailed me about that are equally favourable. Can you talk a little bit about the intellectual community that you were a part of at the time? You've mentioned Richard Dawkins, you've mentioned Douglas Adams. Can you talk about that a little bit? I'm not sure there was a community. And in, in some ways, part of my motivation for bringing the conference together in the first place was to try and reinstate a, a community because artificial life was fading somewhat at the time and had been, become a bit stylized. And I was particularly concerned that it had fragmented, that everyone was starting to become experts on little bits of it. And there weren't many people working on synthesizing complete organisms, so complete living creatures. So, so the main theme of the conference was putting it all together and trying to create complete organisms. And so I invited people who I knew were interested in that and had done work on it. So it was, it was really an attempt to generate a community. But it was an interesting bunch of people. It was uh, quite a widespread range of people. I mean, you know, Douglas is a novelist. We had science fiction writers and journalists and artists and virtual world people and the odd scientist. And there was a, a pretty wide range of, of minds, but they all saw something. They all had something in common. At least to me, they all seemed to have something in common. And when they all got together in Modern College, they all found out they had something in common too. But there wasn't an established community. It wasn't just a matter of going down a list of these were people that sort of gravitated towards me in some fashion. Now, to conclude the Cyberlife Creatures section before we talk about how things could have been done differently and what you learnt from the experiences, <laughs> in 2000, Queen Elizabeth II invited you to Buckingham Palace for an OBE. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it came together from kind of 20 years of tinkering to receiving an OBE? My mind boggles. I still have absolutely no idea how that all came about, and, and it still comes as a real shock. How I found out about it was we'd been to the States on holiday and come back and I had a terrible, terrible headache and went to bed as soon as we got into the house and, and slept for hours and hours and there was this envelope on the doorstep addressed 
10 Downing Street and my wife couldn't bear the thought of not opening it to find out what it was. So she woke me up to tell me I'd got the OBE and, and I just remember saying, oh, that's nice, and going back to sleep. Jet lag was a, was a defining factor in that experience. A jet lag, yeah, jet lag and a terrible, terrible headache, plus complete disbelief. I mean, why would anyone do something as dumb as give me the OBE? I'd never even passed an exam, practically. The only thing I'd won up to that point in my life was a tin of biscuits. And then suddenly they start um, sending me off to see the Queen and, and giving me medals and things. So it just seemed completely unreal at the time. I thought it was a joke. And it still seems pretty unreal now. It probably was uh, the design council who put me up for it because at the time they were doing this Millennium Products thing to try and promote various new technologies and things in British industry. And, and um, Creatures became a Millennium Product for some reason. So I expect it was the design council that put me up for it. But it was a wonderful thing, completely unexpected, probably completely undeserved. So in terms of having an OBE, what do you get out of the deal? It would be nice if it had some money associated with it, wouldn't it? But I looked it up and, and the, the medal's worth £40. So I didn't do too well in that, that respect. All you get is a, a little gold medal on a pink ribbon and the chance to meet the Queen and dress up in a penguin suit for the day. So it's not exactly a practical award, but it was an honour and it gave me a lot of self-confidence and, um, and it was definitely worth it for that. And they didn't, they didn't track down your atheist roots either? <laughs> no, I wasn't disqualified on account of being an atheist, thank goodness. So you've just scratched out the for God part of Forgotten Empire then, have you? <laughs> I don't recall anything requiring me to be religious. Um, apart from the Queen being uh, the head of the Church of England, I don't think there was any... Nobody sort of made me sign on the dotted line that, that, um, or, or, or swear an oath on the Bible or anything like that. So, so I got away with it. So you snuck in and snuck out, basically. <laughs> Okay, so in terms of broad kind of reflection with regards to the creatures and cyber life experience, if you were to do it all again, what would you have done differently? If I had to do, all, do it all again, I'd commit suicide instantly. Honestly, it was a nightmare most of the time. It was five years really, really hard work. The, the programming involved was enormous. I, I calculated at one point that I'd written a quarter of a million lines of code, and it was pretty complex code, and I had no idea any of it was going to work. I mean, I agreed to do this thing and then had to go up and sit on a hilltop for three days and try and invent a brain and work out a whole new kind of neural network and so on. So it was a terribly risky thing. But then there was a period when it was wonderful because it was all starting to happen and suddenly I found myself with an income for the first time in my life. And then it all went horribly downhill and that was when big business got involved. So if I was doing it again, I'd keep the big business out of it, I think. Well, there's lots of ways that I would do it the same. I mean, I, I enjoyed starting it. I enjoyed the, the concept. I enjoyed the challenge of trying to invent all this new stuff from scratch. And... Um, <laughs> And I enjoyed the rewards that came from making it all work. And it was just the money that got me. <laughs> and the fact that our company got involved in the dot-com bust and uh, all went horribly down the tubes. But the stress levels from that were, were pretty horrendous. So if I could have the first bit without the second bit, I'd be happy. And in terms of big business and looking at contemporary game development, which is anything but the kind of one fellow tinkering away in a bedroom, do you think there's any way that can temporary game development could support the kind of artificial life development you did through Creatures? I think it would be very difficult now. I mean, maybe Will Wright will prove me wrong when Spore comes out, but large teams of programmers, it's very hard for anyone to get a coherent enough perspective on, on the whole thing. You have to carve the problem up in order to feed it to these 
huge teams of programmers. And so you don't get one single mind thinking about the whole problem anymore. And I think that was crucial for creatures. I don't think it could, could have worked as a team project from the beginning. I think it was, I mean, it's not necessarily my mind that was the important thing. It was important that it was a mind, that somebody was in charge of the whole thing, had everything from the backstory to the technology to the biology to the marketing in their head. That's what gave the, the whole product some coherence and individuality. And that must be very difficult now. I mean, I've never worked in a large programming team, so I don't know, but <laughs> that's not accidental. I really wouldn't want to. So can you talk a little bit about involving scientists? And obviously they came on board after a period of success or at a point of investment. But can you talk about involving scientists and getting them to, to work in, in this kind of environment? The fact that they, they got involved at the point of investment is just accidental. That's, that's because my first brush with science was when Warner Brothers were checking me out. It seems like they would have liked to have been involved earlier if only they'd known about it. One of my great joys from the project was discovering that the scientific community actually embraced the stuff I'd done, with a few exceptions, and suddenly invited me to conferences to give talks and so on, and, and were very supportive. And that was really nice. Uh, inevitably, scientists started getting more and more involved in what we were doing, uh, not least because academics, like anyone else, are chasing money. When it's hard to find grants for artificial life work, you look to commerce instead. And we were suddenly a well-resourced outfit with all these people clamoring for new technology. And, and uh, there were plenty of scientists who would like to have helped us do that, deliver that. Could you foresee a situation where perhaps you're an academic or perhaps involved in industry in some way where you develop artificial life, artificial intelligence applications as a hobby? Yes, I mean, most people do develop it as a hobby, and, and, and I develop these things as a hobby for 20 years so certainly that's possible it's just somewhat easier to, to do a good job at these things if somebody pays you and, and you get 12 hours a day to work on it instead of uh, evenings and weekends and I, for a lot of my time I've not been professionally working in these fields, I've been writing books or doing other things to fund my work and for the past 10 years I suppose I've been an amateur researcher doing it as a hobby just rather more committed than a lot of hobbyists and funding my work by writing books and things so it's not an easy career option so it's still a hobby even for me really. Well at that point I think we should probably conclude this interview and we will return talking about your developments of artificial intelligence and Lucy. Oh my goodness yes Lucy I remember her. Steve Grant thank you very much for the opportunity to chat with you today. Oh, you're welcome Tom.